Good morning to you all. My name is uh, Bob Gregory, and what we're going to uh, uh, share with you this morning are some principles of, of, of saving seed. And if that's what you're interested in doing, you're in the right place. Um, I've already bumped farther than I wanted to, but we're okay. Um, I want to give you a little uh, a background about who I am and, and what I do. Uh, my wife and I own a farm in central West Virginia, uh, where we've been farming for seven years now. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, teaching the agriculture program at our, our school over in Rapidan, Virginia for about 10 years. Before that, I had about a 35-year career in mainstream uh, large-scale, both commercial and organic agriculture in Northern California, uh, the Western states, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, and eventually did consulting work in Latin America for a number of years too, primarily in Mexico. Um, I have a great passion for sharing uh, the experiences that the Lord has given me through my career. I have a great, deep, abiding respect for the agriculture component in education, and I honestly am personally convicted that all of us need to be participating in some way in agriculture. And with those passions, my uh, wife and my daughter and I uh, bought a 120-acre farm in West Virginia uh, about seven years ago. Uh, we also bought a school building, an abandoned elementary school building that was adjacent to that farm where we conduct agriculture training classes. Um, for those of you that might be interested in some follow-up training, I'm going to suggest our, our website to you. It's bereagardens.org, and uh, we also have a table over here at the side of the room where we can uh, uh, share our contact information and give you a little more information if you're interested in what we do. Um, our, our primary interest is human health, and we want to grow our crops in a fashion that provides the greatest nutrition for us because ultimately that's what we're, uh, we're eating food for. And uh, uh, what I have to share with you today has a little bit of bearing on that. Yesterday we did a program on soil nutrition and that certainly is an important factor too. But also the varieties of seed that we plant have a bearing on our nutrition. And I wanna share some things with you today that uh, most of us just don't know. Um, we have some problems in the world today because of the consolidation of the seed industry. You know, uh, a, a couple of generations ago, there were literally thousands of seed companies in this country. And when I say seed companies, I'm, I'm, as, as we use this term, most of us are familiar with seed marketing companies. We, we know of companies like Johnny Seeds or maybe High Mowing Seeds, a Pleasant uh, Valley Seeds out in California, a number of other uh, companies that we may be buying are, are open pollinated and, and, and some hybrid varieties from. Those companies are marketing companies. They're not the companies that actually produce the seed. In fact, the companies that actually produce the seed are very few and far between. In part of my uh, occupational history in Northern California, I worked for a large seed co-op for a period of time. And the reality is that if you're buying, for example, Blue Lake green bean seed, whether it's from Johnny's or whether it's from high mowing seeds or burpees or uh, one of the other many seed catalogs that are out there, uh, it's very likely that the seed that's in that package was grown on only one or two farms that had seed contracts through a seed production company. 
And over the course of time, some large multinational corporations have bought out most of those seed production companies, not the marketing companies per se, but the, the, the production companies, and they're actually controlling much of the seed that is available to us today uh, without our awareness. There are many varieties of even open pollinated seed that have gone extinct essentially over the last decade or so simply because these large multinational corporations want to promote their newer varieties. And these large companies, companies like Monsanto, Bayer Corporation, Syngenta, uh, dominate the seed production today. And unfortunately, all it takes for a, a, a variety of plant to go extinct is to stop producing that seed for, for one generation. And this is literally what's happening today. So because of this, we have an extreme narrowing of the gene pool, which is one of the reasons that I appreciate companies like, like, like Baker Creek that's represented here uh, at this conference because they're doing their best to acquire and assimilate uh, non-patented varieties of open pollinated seeds so that we can preserve that genetic heritage. As we narrow the gene pool in the varieties of seed that we have available to us, uh, we run a very serious risk of catastrophic loss of entire crops. Because just as in the human population, there's been a flu bug going around in our area for the last month or so. And, you know, the folks in our church, uh, a number of them have had the flu, but we have a number of, of members too that, that, that had genetic resistance to it and didn't come down with that bug. But when everything has the same genetic makeup, it reduces the opportunity for that genetic variation and the whole population then becomes susceptible to some catastrophic event. And indeed, this has happened in the past in a number of, of circumstances. Probably the one that, uh, that most of you might be f familiar with would be the Irish potato famine, where the, uh, the, the potatoes in Ireland, the, the, the Irish people had a preference for, for two particular varieties of potato, and those were widely planted, and a pathogen from North America, Phytophthora infestans, a fungal disease, uh, was brought over to Ireland and infested all of the potatoes and really in a period of two years essentially wiped out their crops because of the lack of genetic diversity. There are many other potatoes that have resistance to that pathogen, but the ones that were popular in Ireland at that time did not. So one of the things that I'm very concerned about, one of the reasons why we really need to produce some of our own seed is protect some of that genetic heritage. One of the functions that we have at uh, Berea Gardens is we have a, uh, a regional seed bank there. And that doesn't mean that I have lots of seed to sell you. What we are trying to do is acquire seeds from our immediate geographic area, seeds that have been grown there for a long period of time and are well adapted uh, to, to our little area on the upper uh, west fork of the Little Kanawha River. And, and, and keep those strains viable and alive. Um, uh, there's a generation before us that has a long history of gardening in that area, and we've acquired bean seeds and corn varieties and uh, uh, some uh, uh, melons and some uh, pumpkins that are indigenous to our area. They're very unique to our area, which kind of fits the model of how farmers have selected seed over time and generations past. But as this uh, this picture should startle you a little bit, and if it doesn't, uh, uh, you know, stimulate you to some action. I don't, think, I, I, I don't think we have a means of stimulating you to action. 
uh, as we sit here today, uh, the large company that's represented on the upper right-hand portion of this uh, photograph, these are all, I know you can't see this well, but these are all subsidiaries that these large multinationals have purchased over the course of the last few years. And uh, right now, Syngen or, uh, Bear Corporation is in the process of buying out Monsanto to even further uh, um, accentuate the conglomeration that's been taking place here. Um, so we have, uh, uh, we have a duty to ourselves to maybe consider uh, producing and saving some of our own seed. When it comes to, to, to our seed production, and I'm going to talk about just general uh, seeds in general here uh, for, for a few minutes before we get into the actual methods of, of producing and saving individual seeds, but I want to, uh, I need to move this so I can see what I'm reading here, pardon the background noise. Um, when we establish our initial seed stocks, meaning that when you select the varieties of seeds that you want to use for, to produce plants to produce subsequent seeds, I strongly recommend that you buy seeds from a commercial grower's supplier, not one of the mail order seed companies that, uh, that only caters to consumer or home garden uh, types of markets. And the reason for that is seed has different qualities to it. Um, there is good seed and there is bad seed and there is old seed and there is fresh seed. And the companies, the sales companies that market to commercial growers have a higher um, level of, of, um, of commitment, I think, to providing those growers with good quality seed because they sell a lot of it to commercial growers and because they need that, that customer base for the next year. And they're also dealing, when you're dealing with commercial growers, you're dealing with an educated consumer who knows the difference between a good quality seed and a poorer quality seed. So their level of responsibility to the end customer is usually quite a bit higher. And by buying from a commercial supplier too, you can usually buy seed much more cheaply. Uh, if you're buying, I buy seeds by the, uh, by the quarter ounce or the ounce or the pound or the multiple pounds, depending on, on what the, uh, the particular species might be. But I buy quite a bit of seed. But uh, even if you're buying at a level of an ounce or two of seed, if you store it properly, you can make use of that for a long period of time. And in many circumstances, I can buy a half ounce of broccoli seed, for example, for, the, for, for, for maybe twice as much as you pay for a small packet of broccoli seed and get a thousand times more seeds, which I can then share with my friends and neighbors if it's more than what I can use. So buy from a commercial uh, seed supplier. And I have some listed on my website if you want to make a note of it. It's on the slide there. Uh, th those are, uh, that's not a comprehensive list of all the good seed companies that I consider, but it's the ones that I use. And I can recommend them uh, uh, to, to be suppliers of good quality seed. I want you to consider, too, that there is a variation in seed quality, and buying from a reputable supplier really does pay dividends, especially if you're doing market gardening and you're growing on a commercial basis. And one of the things that, that, that determines the quality of the seed is the specific gravity of the seed. You know, when the, when, when the seed is harvested, uh, and typically in the fall, it goes through a cleaning process and a grading process. And often in that grading process, you'll have two seeds that look identical. And you can't tell a visual difference between them. They're the same in size. 
and uh, you know, by all appearances, they're, they're the same, but one will have quite a bit more density than the other one. It weighs more. And they separate out seeds by weight also as a quality segregation. And the heavier quality weight means that that seed has more carbohydrate, more energy, and, and, and more, more power in it, quite literally, so that it's a much better quality seed. And usually the commercial uh, the seed companies that, that, that sell to commercial or, or market farmers will buy that better quality seed and the, and the lighter seed, the poorer quality seed, goes, goes to home gardeners and goes through the marketing routes of going into packages and the Walmart racks that you see and, and, and uh, other avenues such as that because in general the, the, the backyard gardener or the home consumer doesn't know the difference in the quality of the seed and if they plant seed that doesn't germinate and doesn't come up they usually attribute the, the, the fault to themselves for that wondering what they've done wrong the seed didn't germinate um, so uh, stay with a, a good quality seed supplier you want to select varieties of seeds that are appropriate for your climate for your day length and for your, your season length. And also in some instances, it's important to select varieties too of hybrids perhaps that might have disease resistance for your specific area. Don't make your choices simply based on, on your preference for the color of the tomato or what you think it might taste like or, or, or the, the consumer characteristics of the plant. You want to select plants that are appropriate for your environment. And one way to find out what some of those might be is to attend your local farmer's market and see what the growers right in your area are growing and use that as a basis to start your population of plants. And then as time goes on, you can experiment in your own gardens to determine how many additional varieties you might be able to add. Did you have a question? Yes, it does. Uh, the question was uh, uh, the 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 seed packets that go to consumers, I mentioned that the seed in those is generally poorer quality than what the commercial growers get. And the question was, does that pertain to organic seeds too? And the answer to that is yes, it does. <clears throat> I suggest in your gardens too that you always plant multiple varieties of the same crop. For example, on our market farm, we, we usually plant five to seven different varieties of lettuce. We have uh, at least three or four different varieties of broccoli that we grow through the course of the year uh, and, and so forth. And part of the reason for that is though, even though we might identify a variety that grows very well for us in our given environment, because of weather fluctuations from season to season and variations in pest pressure and variations in disease pressure, we often find that uh, one year, one variety may do very well. And the following year, it may be another variety that we have planted that, that, that exceeds that performance and, and, and does very well just based on the variations of the climate and, and the disease and pest pressure for that season. So don't put all of your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Don't plant just one variety. Uh, this after, uh, or, or after this presentation, I'll be sharing with you some information about pests and, and disease control too. And there's also advantages in planting multiple varieties for that purpose. And I'll explain that more fully in our next session. I, I recommend that you use a combination of open pollinated and hybrid seeds. I do plant hybrid seeds, and I'm going to do some explaining here uh, in, a, in a, uh, the next slide or two to, to help you understand why I think there is value in making use of hybrid varieties, especially uh, for food security right now. 
Now the difference between these two, some of you may be aware of, is that we can save seeds from the open pollinated varieties, but we can't necessarily save seeds from hybrid varieties because we don't know what we're going to get in subsequent generations. And I want to walk you through this a little bit, but I do want to dispel the myth that um, open pollinated varieties are the only things that we should plant though. And many organic growers, many uh, people that are interested in growing sustainably have the opinion that we shouldn't be using hybrid seeds because they're uh, somehow a, uh, you know, an aberration of, of, of man's intervention. And I want to dispel some of that mythology because the reality is that every single article of food that we eat today, without exception, every single article of food that we eat today at some point in its history was a hybrid. Nothing exists today in our diet that was anything like the Edenic diet. In fact, in many cases, the plants that we eat today are very, very different than they were just a couple of hundred years ago. So I want it clear that there is no virtue attached to an open pollinated variety because it's more Edenic or because it's closer to what God's creation actually was. Hybridization has been taking place since the Garden of Eden through natural measures as well as man's intervention in more recent years for purposes. And I want to make it clear that, that uh, you know, there's, there's just as much value in using a good quality hybrid. Indeed, I'm going to show you an example of something that, that we've done recently that's really quite interesting. Um, I'm going to suggest that you start looking for your seeds as soon as you leave this conference. And the reason that I say that is competition for seeds today is very, very high. And because those multinational corporations have bought out many of the competitors within the seed industry, it's important that we uh, try to secure our supplies quickly. And even if you don't have a place to plant these things right away, if you store them properly, uh, good quality seed will store for periods of years if you follow some simple principles. And we'll get into that too. But by acquiring varieties now, especially the open pollinated varieties that you want to make use of for your long-term food security, uh, you'll be able to get a good quality seed at this time of year and you'll be able to get the varieties that you want this time of year because frankly in another month or two a lot of those are going to be sold out until next fall, next year's seed crop. So, so do it soon. Uh, I've got a picture here of a flower and I want to talk a little bit about that difference between open pollinated and pollinated varieties. Uh, this flower has as, is, is, is essentially the seed factory for the plant and when we talk about um, uh, uh, seed production what we're talking about is the sexual means of reproducing plants. There are both sexual means that plants reproduce and asexual means by which plants reproduce, things like cuttings and grafting, that's an example of asexual reproduction. But uh, sexual reproduction in plants involves using pollen, which is the male portion of that, uh, that production, and the egg or the ovum, which is the female portion. In an open pollinated variety, most plants, by the way, have both, uh, both of those organs. They have the stamens that produce the pollen, which are on the outside of the photograph here, and that central tube in the middle is the pistil, where the ovum are at the base of that pistil. In an open pollinated variety of plant, you have a population of plants that are almost genetically identical. 
This all starts with one initial plant that produces seeds, but the offspring, those seeds, are almost genetically identical. And I'll give you the example of aroma tomato. When you buy a, a package of aroma tomatoes and plant those seeds, uh, those plants are, may have come from a wide population of aroma tomato plants, but the genetics inside that seed is almost identical. And that's what we mean by an open pollinated variety, is that this flower or a population of these same, uh, uh, these same flowers pollinate themselves and they produce an offspring that is very true to type. Now, occasionally you'll get a little genetic aberration. Uh, those of us that do plant green beans, I know when I plant my blue light green beans, occasionally I'll get a flat bean in, in, in the bunch that is a little bit different than what, uh, what the, the, the typical green bean is, and that's an example of some of that genetic variation. It's in there, but it's very, very slight. The population is very genetically stable. Yes, young man. Heirloom is a marketing term. Open pollinated is, is a term that describes the process of, of the plant pollinating itself, just as I did. Most heirlooms are open pollinated. And heirloom is, a, is, is simply a marketing term that's attributed to a seed that's been around for a while. But there are instances where some seed companies market uh, open pollinated varieties as heirlooms that are only uh, seven or eight generations old. Seven or eight ge plant generations, that means years. So heirloom is not really a technical term, it's a marketing term. Good question. Um, in a hybrid variety, and this has taken place, as I said, uh, throughout history, more recently with man's intervention because we're trying to uh, develop crosses that have specific characteristics. But in a hybrid variety, essentially you have a pollen parent. In this case, I have a, an example of a small flower with dark uh, petals uh, crossed with a female pollen parent, which is a large flower with um, monocolor petals. And the cross from that combines the genetic characteristics of both of those parents. And the offspring, which is considered the F1 generation, that F stands for first filial generation, uh, combines the characteristics of both uh, the, the, the pollen parent and the female uh, seed parent. And the dominant characteristics from each of those is what is expressed in the F1 generation. And there are advantages to this in terms of, um, of, of some of our interest in food production and home gardening. And one of the advantages is that we, can, we, we, we bred varieties, for example, for resistance to nematodes, if you have nematode problems in your garden. There are varieties that, of, of tomatoes that are resistant to late blight, if late blight or Phytophthora infestans is a, a serious problem in your garden. So there are, there are, are positive reasons for the home gardener uh, to make use of some of these hybrid varieties on occasion. Uh, there's a lot of myth about the fact, or, or, or about statements made, that hybrid varieties are not as nutritious as open pollinated varieties. That is not true across the board. That is true in some circumstances, but not across the board. 
And although many of our commercial varieties of vegetables have been hybridized for marketing purposes, for example, their marketed or their, their, their genetic characteristics are selected for long shelf life or for their, their, their resistance to bruising or their capacity to, uh, to survive in cold storage for a long period of time and not necessarily things like taste and, and, and vitamin content, which are things that we would value, uh, there are still varieties out there that are hybridized for characteristics that can be advantageous to us. And that's why I suggest that you make use of these while we can. Now, this first um, uh, filial hybrid offspring of the, uh, uh, of the two parents that we have here uh, is not necessarily a good choice uh, to save seed from if you want to reproduce that same plant again. You're gonna to have to buy that, that hybrid seed again to get that same cross. And the reason is that F1 generation has characteristics, both dominant and recessive, from the two parents, the pollen parent and the seed parent. But something really interesting starts happening if you start self-pollinating that F1 generation. If we take the F1 generation and allow it to self-pollinate, meaning that it pollinates itself, we're not crossing it with another, uh, another plant, and save the seed from that, it may very well grow. There's a myth that hybrid seeds don't grow. That's not necessarily true. It will grow, but the offspring of that, the F2 generation, is going to have different characteristics than that F1 generation. In most instances, it's they, 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 it might be less desirable than the F1. In some instances, though, it can be nicer. You can come up with a, a, a new variety of your own that way that often uh, can produce something really quite, uh, quite nice. Uh, you don't want to use these for food security because you don't know what the offspring is going to be, but there's no reason not to plant some hybrid seeds and do some experimenting to see what you get. But something really interesting starts happening after you get down a few generations. When we get down to the F6 and F7 generation, the genetics of that self-pollinated offspring through each of these F3, F4, F5 generations begins to stabilize. And by the time you get to that F7 generation, you have a new, stable, open-pollinated, or heirloom, if you will, variety of plants. And this is the process that virtually all of our, our, our current open pollinated varieties have gone to at some point in their history. All of them are, are essentially offsprings that were at one time hybrid varieties. So as you can see, uh, we have a lot of opportunity here for some fun and some, uh, some uh, test work to do in our gardens too. I'm gonna show you an example here in a minute. Did someone over here have a question? Yes, sir. The pollen parent provides the pollen or the male portion of the cross. The seed parent is where the seed is produced. Now in this process, commercially, they will sometimes pick a female seed parent that is pollen sterile. Uh, when when, when uh, sunflower seed is produced, for example, they'll plant multiple rows of the female seed parent and a single row of the male 
pollen parent in the field and allow nature to do this crossing for them. In that process, there's an advantage to selecting a female seed parent that is pollen sterile, meaning that uh, it, it doesn't produce that male pollen, or if it does, it's not very viable. Uh, this creates a potential hazard in going through these multiple generations because that, that sterility gene can pop up here at any time too. So you can get to the F2, F3, F4 generation and at F5 that sterility gene may, uh, may manifest itself and, and you've reached the end of the line at that point. You're not going to get to the F7 generation. But it doesn't mean that we can't do this and it doesn't mean that we can't uh, save our hybrid seed and grow it and experiment with it and come up with new open pollinated varieties. Yes? So that would be seven generations where you're collecting seeds from each generation. That's right, and, and that it's pollinated itself, right, because we have some considerations in pollinated seed. Here's an example. Uh, <clears throat> six years ago, we crossed uh, an Amish neck pumpkin, which is the, in the lower picture there. I tried to make these pictures so this was about to scale. The Amish neck pumpkin is the one that is bent over the, uh, the butternut squash there. You see the butternut squash? We used the Amish neck pumpkin as the pollen parent and crossed it with the butternut squash. And after six generations, this year, this is what I harvested. It's essentially very stable because it's very much like what we harvested last year and next year, it, if, if it reproduces true to type next year, I know that we have a new open pollinated variety. This is a very flavorful squash. The one that I'm holding in my hand there weighs 42 pounds. Very productive. And the, uh, uh, the, 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 the neck pumpkin weighs probably 10 pounds. The butternut squash uh, weighs anywhere from a pound and a half to two pounds. But by crossing those two and combining their characteristics, we got some of the flavor characteristics from the butternut squash. We got the larger size of, of the neck pumpkin. In fact, we got a synergistic increase in the size because of the size of these, these squash. So next year, this will be a new open pollinated variety as a consequence of a hybrid that we did six years ago. And uh, frankly, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's got a very small seed cavity. It's very flavorful. And, uh, you know, it's one that, that seems to store for a long time, too. So we, we kind of uh, uh, enjoyed that experiment. Yes, ma'am. Do you remove the, um, the stamens from the female flower? Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, her question was, when, we, when, we, when we're hybridizing, do we re remove the stamens from the female uh, 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 seed parent? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, I, I don't have time today to go into all the details about how to, how to do your own crossing, but there's lots of information out there if you want to do some hybridizing yourself. Uh, Mr. Google has, has a number of answers for you out there. Uh, but yes, that's essentially what we did. Is we guaranteed that the pollen uh, from, from one plant is what actually uh, uh, fertilized the other plant. Then we had to maintain some isolation. And this is one of the, 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 the main characteristics if we want to save our own seed. And right now, um, if, 
you are interested in saving seed, I want to focus now on saving seed just from our, our open pollinated varieties. I gave you an example there uh, just to help kind of dispel this myth that, uh, you know, if we have hybrid varieties in our garden, we're somehow less virtuous than our neighbors that use only heirloom or open pollinated seed. Uh, that, that, that's, that's a myth that, that, that I enjoy, uh, uh, enjoy breaking down, and it really is a myth. Um, but when we want to save seed from our open pollinated varieties, and this we should do for our food security because we know what the outcome is going to be. We know that if we plant aroma tomato one year and we save the seed and we do it properly, that we're going to have aroma tomato next year too. And part of what is important in our seed production is that we have to isolate those plants so that they don't cross-pollinate. I mentioned earlier that when we grow lettuce, we grow seven varieties of lettuce, and for our food security, we want diversity in our garden, but that's not what we want if we want to save our own seed. We want to have the capacity for isolation so that my seven lettuce varieties don't intermingle and cross-pollinate, and I end up with a genetic mess at the end of that of, of hybrid varieties that may not uh, be very desirable. And we can use two things to isolate our plants. We can use distance or we can use time. And the method that is most effective and most useful, at least on our farm, where we do grow a wide variety of things, is the time element. Now, bear in mind that if we're saving lettuce from something, or saving seed from something like lettuce, we harvest lettuce for our marketing purposes long before it's mature long before it even blooms, and it's certainly not going to produce seed and contaminate things. So what I try to do is I, I like to reproduce our seed about once every three years, and I like to, uh, with the lettuce varieties, plant all seven lettuce varieties for the market and perhaps just use one of them to produce seed in the fall and uh, one to produce seed in the spring. We plant multiple cycles of our lettuce. And it takes about 110 days to allow that lettuce to go full cycle and produce seed. It only takes about 45 to 55 days to produce the head of lettuce. So it takes at least twice as long to produce seed as it does for us to grow the crop. And by the time that lettuce seed is, or, or by the time that lettuce plant flowers and is capable of receiving pollen, the rest of the crop has already been harvested. Uh, we can do this with, with corn varieties too. Many of you uh, perhaps live in areas where you want to save uh, uh, corn seed. And you may be in an area in Iowa that is surrounded with genetically modified corn and you want to protect yourself from contamination from that GMO corn. Well, my suggestion would be uh, talk to your neighbor and find out what variety of corn he has, how long a cycle that corn variety has, and then plant your corn much later or much earlier so that you don't have viable pollen at the same time. And that can protect you from contamination from genetically modified crops, even if they're right next door to you. So the element of time can be very valuable in that segregation. I want to uh, discuss vegetable plants and fruiting plants separately in terms of how we produce the seed. And we're going to go through the vegetable plants first here. And my suggestion uh, with vegetable plants, and now I'm talking about things like lettuce or kale or broccoli or cauliflower, uh, uh, parts of, 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 of the, the, the crops where we actually, uh, you know, are consuming part of the plant rather than just a fruit of the plant like a tomato or a cucumber. Uh, when we grow plants for seed, 
that seed is going to be the storage package for a massive amount of energy. And our idea here is to promote the optimum growth of that plant to produce that massive amount of energy that's going to go into that seed. That means we don't want to harvest any part of that plant. I know a lot of backyard gardeners that strip leaves off their lettuce plants and eventually the plant gets so stressed it throws up a flower panicle and, and, and produces seed and then they think, oh great, now I get to save the seed for next year. That's a really serious mistake because that seed is going to have very, very poor quality and if you continue to do that over a few generations, you absolutely destroy the integrity of that variety and you'll end up with very, very bad quality plants as well as, 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 as bad quality seed over time. So designate significant plants within your garden for seed plants and it doesn't take many of them. Uh, a couple of years ago I needed some, uh, some seed for one of the red lettuce varieties that I grow so I had four plants in a corner of my garden that I allowed to go to seed. This was red sales lettuce. That's a variety that you might be familiar with. And off of four plants, I got about uh, uh, four gallons of lettuce seed off of that. I'm still using it and we'll be using it for a long time yet. It, it, it can be very productive. Uh, for most, uh, uh, you know, for most purposes, I suggest that for vegetable varieties that you do set aside three or four plants. And the reason is you don't want to set aside just one plant in the event that it gets attacked by insects or you have problems or, or the plant is mechanically damaged in some way. Um, you know, set aside three or four plants. It's okay to produce more seed than you need. Your neighbors will like you and, and, and it's always fun to share that too. Yes? Well, in, in terms of selecting the plants for the seed, if, uh, we'll, we'll stay with the, the, the lettuce example. Um, I, I, my practice is to do what historically has been done, and that is to select the plants that are most vigorous at, at about a, a third of their stage of growth. Before I, before I harvest the crop, I'll identify three or four individuals that's in a manageable area that have the, the, the best characteristics and, and, and use those as my, as my uh, seed plants. And, you know, I, I, I try to keep them close together because they are going to cross-pollinate in, in some instances. So uh, a little cross-pollination between even the same variety of plant is not a bad thing to have happen because that they aren't 100% genetically identical. There's some slight variation there, and that's how you get to... Uh, to selections over generations that give you an improvement in the quality of the plant or give you um, uh, characteristics that, that allow it to adapt more specifically to your particular environment. Um, yes, sir. Oh, 15 feet, 10, 15 feet. Yeah. <clears throat> um, what we do is we allow the, the, the plants to, to, to just send up their flower panicle. Most of our, our, our vegetable plants uh, send up a center shoot that has multiple flowers on it. And uh, we allow those to, to be pollinated. And I don't harvest that panicle. I don't harvest my seed until the plant starts to shed about 10% of the seed. The biggest mistake people make in, in producing their own seed is harvesting too soon. If you harvest too early, 
you've got, again, seed that is not fully infused with all of the vigor that it could have. It may germinate, but it's still not fully infused with all of the vigor that it could have. And if you wait until the plant starts to shed about 10% of the seed, then you know, know that it's reached its, its full ripeness. The vast majority of time that, that, that people have given me seed from vegetables, you know, that they want to share with me, whether it be a new variety or, or just some that they've grown, the seed is grossly immature. Uh, and and uh, this is something to, to be very aware of, is you want it to, to reach full maturity. And that takes a lot longer than you might think. It doesn't have to be fully dry, but it has to be fully mature. And uh, lettuce, for example, forms in a little seed pod, and the little seed pods will split. And when about 10 of those are split, or 10% of those are split on the plant, and the seed is actually being shed on the ground, you reach the full life cycle of that plant, and the seed is, is of good quality at that point. Typically what I do is I take a, a plastic trash bag, and I put it over that seed panicle, and I cut it off from underneath. Uh, turn it over and take it inside uh, to, to allow it to dry out. <clears throat> and it's important as we allow the seed panicles to dry that we do it in a dark location. Seeds require light in order to germinate. Light has an influence on seed and it also has an influence on the finer proteins and the enzymes that are in the seed. And uh, we want to dry it in a dark location. We also want to store it in a dark location. But I take that seed panicle inside and I usually spread some newspapers out on the floor underneath it. I remove the plastic bag and I just hang it upside down to dry for a period of time. And uh, one of the things that is necessary for us to store seed properly is to get the moisture in the seed below 12%. We want less than 12% moisture in the seed. And how do we know when we've got 12% moisture? Well, you know, seed companies use, use moisture meters for that type of thing. I use my pocket knife. Even on something as small as lettuce seed, if you place that seed on a, on a hard, flat surface and push your knife through the seed, it should shatter instead of slice or cut. If it shatters, you know that it's below 12% uh, moisture. If there's any green residue, any moisture at all, or if it just kind of mushes, pushes through, this, through the seed, then it's still too, too moist to store. And we're not talking about 12% humidity in the atmosphere, we're talking about 12% humidity in the seed, so you can still dry seed even when the humidity is higher than that. That typically takes us in, in West Virginia, where we do have a fairly humid climate, it takes anywhere from seven to 10 days usually to dry the seed down completely. Uh, if you have a large quantity of seed, you can always run a dehumidifier in the room where the, where the seed is being dried. That speeds up the process a little bit. But I don't recommend using a dehydrator or any sort of heat source for doing that. Was that your question? Okay. <clears throat> uh, the next thing we do is, is once the, the seed is, is, is fully dry, is we'll, we'll essentially thresh the seed out and we do it primarily by hand with all of our vegetable crops and that is just taking the seed pods and running, rubbing them uh, through our hands while we're standing on a tarp on the floor and then we collect all of that and put it in a five gallon bucket and then we uh, separate the chaff from the seed using a, a, a simple box fan. Um, uh, and the way that I prefer to do it uh, is to actually use the suction side of the box fan because you get much more precise control. 
Uh, we talked about the specific gravity of the seed earlier being an indication of its quality. So I want to keep basically the best and heaviest seed for myself. And essentially what we do when we, when we clean the seed is, is I'll have a bucket on the floor uh, with the box mat fan uh, mounted just on a table standing beside it. And I'll simply pour the seed very slowly behind the fan into the bucket and adjust my distance from the fan to the point where about five to 10% of the seed is actually blowing through the fan. Because the seed is heavier than most of the chaff, you'll clean all the chaff out that way, but I also want to discard the lighter seed, and that gives me better seed quality. And since the plants are so productive, you can waste some of that, and it's, it's, it's not a problem. And I'll usually go through that process twice, um, you know, I'll clean it once and then I'll clean it a second time and by then we've got good quality clean seed. Uh, we package it, label it, date it, which is important, and, and then store it. And I'll, I'll talk to you about storage here in just a minute. I'm not sure how we're doing for time here, but... Um, I've, I've said I'll describe that in just a minute here. I want to talk about, before we get to that, I want to talk about how we, uh, <clears throat> how we handle fruits. You know, in the case of, of vegetables, we wanted a, a um, you know, a, an individual plant, a specific plant uh, for that. In the case of fruits, uh, what I try to do is select a, a vigorous plant. Again, we still have to concern ourselves with the isolation issue. So if I've got 15 varieties of tomatoes all planted in a relatively small area, that's not a good area to select um, uh, you know, seed tomatoes from. So if I have some, a variety or two that I want uh, to, to produce our seed tomatoes, I'll plant them at opposite ends of the garden or separate them by some distance because with tomatoes, uh, you, you have a little discretion about separating them by time. The plants may grow at the same time, but they don't all blossom at the same time. So you still have a little discretion as far as, as, as separating them by time, but not a whole lot. Uh, so I like to use distance also with my tomato plants and separate them, um, you know, to, to the point where I know they're not going to cross-pollinate. The um, uh, consideration here is selecting a, a healthy plant first and foremost, and then identifying a healthy fruit on that plant about halfway through its growth. And this includes... Uh, th this process includes all of our vine seeds too, cucumbers, cantaloupes, squash, uh, any, any of the fruiting crops uh, this, this applies to. Uh, but we'll stay with the, the example of tomatoes. And with that tomato, we'll look for a nice, healthy specimen of a tomato on a healthy plant. And then we'll tag it so we don't make tomato juice out of it. Yes? While it's still green. No, in the, in the cycle of the fruit itself, you know, not when it's, when it's a, a real juvenile fruit, but once you've determined the, the potential size of that fruit, and you can usually identify, you know, any, any perturbations in the, and, you know, whether it was the flower was pollinated well, and you've got a good solid fruit there that was well pollinated, and, uh, you know, it's, it's still green in color, uh, but, you know, that from that point to, to where it starts to blush in color a little bit. 
but the idea is to just you know keep keep your your kids from picking it and <laughs> walking through the garden with it with it being a snack uh, you know kind of it's important to identify it and then the other consideration too is to 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 keep don't allow that plant to produce real heavily you might want to do a little thinning on the plant. It's not important to, to strip all the other fruit off the plant, but you don't want that plant burdened by an excessive crop that's going to diminish the energy that goes into that tomato that you've selected for your seed. And, you know, another mistake that is often made with fruits, as with the vegetables, is that we often harvest the seed before it's fully mature. And when it comes to tomatoes, I actually wait until the tomato actually starts to, 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 to rot on the vine. It'll ferment on the vine before I harvest it for seed. In fact, I don't even mind if that tomato falls off on the ground because realistically, we want the same characteristics as we do with the vegetables by allowing that seed to fully mature. Now, seed will, will in, in many cases, will, will germinate even at the stage where we eat the tomato. But where we eat the tomato and, and the stage of development where that seed is fully mature, it may take an additional two or three weeks to allow that seed to fully mature. And it should be, uh, you know, kind of mushy. The same thing holds true for, for our vine crops. I like my watermelons to actually split in the field. Uh, before I save the seed from the watermelons that, that I'm going to use. And, uh, you know, with my zucchinis and cucumbers, they look like baseball bats uh, by the time that I harvest them for, uh, for seed because you know, we want to make sure that they're fully mature. Okay, I'm getting uh, short on times. I'm getting short on time here, so I, I, I want to go through quickly what it takes to store seed. And seed will last for a long, long time. I have some lettuce seed that is nine years old that still is viable and germinates. And what we have to control in storing our seed are temperature, light, and moisture. Those all three things, if we can keep them on a nice flat line, seed will last for a long, long time, especially if the temperature is fairly cool. So we want it cool, we want it dark, and we want it dry. And we want to protect our seeds from any ethylene damage. And ethylene is a, is a process of ripening fruit and vegetables. So uh, a re your refrigerator is not a good place to store seeds. I put my seeds, after they're dry to that 12%, inside uh, Ziploc freezer bags, and I label it, date it again, and uh, usually double bag my, uh, my seed in the freezer. I have a small Ziploc bag with each variety in it, and then I put it in a big two-gallon Ziploc bag that has the whole species in it, so that I have like 10 varieties of tomatoes in, in a, in a two-gallon Ziploc bag. And they go in, the, in, I keep them in a little chest freezer in my office. And that freezer is dedicated to seed. I don't put anything else in there. And, uh, you know, if you have a home freezer uh, where you're not opening and closing it all the time, because even though it's cold in there, if you're opening and closing the door, uh, your, your, your temperature is, is varying quite a bit. Even though it's a cold temperature, you open the door and that freezer is warming up by 30 degrees and then dropping down by 30 degrees again. Uh, but even a dark corner in your basement where the temperature stays fairly steady, those are good places to store seed too. Uh, but the concept here and the principle is that you need to have nice steady temperature, no light, and uh, uh, moisture levels that are, that are dry. Fluctuations in humidity will impact the seed too. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.